Well, it's a privilege and an honor to be able to share from the scriptures with you this morning. And today we will begin our study in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3. And this will be the foundation of our study as we go to several places in the scriptures, looking at this subject, a heart for the lost. Charles Spurgeon said regarding this passage of scripture, I need to begin by letting you know that this is a difficult sermon for me to preach because I fall so short of the example of Paul's deep burden for lost souls that we see here. I can't fathom ever making a statement like Paul makes here that he would be willing to be eternally damned if it would result in the salvation of his countrymen, the Jews. Spurgeon reported how John Bunyan said that he often felt while preaching that he could give his own salvation for the salvation of his hearers. Then Spurgeon stuck the knife in. And I pity the man who has not felt the same. Now, you all are really fortunate because first service, they didn't have all the scriptures we're going to visit this morning in the app. So if you're using the app, they're in there now. Thank you, Justin. But if you're using a good old Bible, we will be in Romans 9 first. We will travel to Exodus 32, Matthew 22, and Matthew 9 if you want to put a piece of your bulletin in each one of those places. Well, depending on the day, there are many things I think I would be willing to do to reach the lost. And I'm sure many of you would agree that you could and would do a lot to reach a family member or a friend or maybe a coworker that you like. But I can say with certainty, giving up my own salvation for someone else's has not ever crossed my mind. Nor could I fathom it, as Spurgeon said. Now, today's goal is not to somehow rally us all together to head out those front doors ready to give up our salvation for the lost, but rather that we would all consider our heart in response to the lost and their present condition. So chapter 9 stands in stark contrast to the themes presented in the previous chapter. In the first half of Romans 8, Paul focuses on a life lived in the Spirit. He says in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We are to set our mind on the things of the Spirit and not live according to the flesh. We are children of God living a life in the Spirit. Beginning in verse 18, we see a slight shift to the subject of hope in suffering and trials. Verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Our hope is in what we don't see. Therefore, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And then down in verse 28, he says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then Paul closes this section of Romans with these powerful words we of course know well. Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, if you're a believer today, this is your position, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Those words are an awesome foundation as we dive into these next three verses. 
So Romans 9, verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul is about to make a truly radical statement, and he sets it up with an assertion, a statement of fact. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. What Paul is about to say supports here by saying that, I am not lying. And Paul often uses statements like, I'm not lying, or before God, or God is my record, or God is my witness, to affirm his genuine character and love and concern for others. He wants them to know that what he is about to say is absolutely true, and it's rooted in his genuine love and concern for others. So sitting here today, Do you have a genuine love and concern for others, especially the lost? Because a heart for the lost has a genuine concern and love for people. Well, Paul doubles down with two points to further strengthen and support this assertion. In the first, I tell the truth in Christ. These two words contained in that first line strengthen the assertion he's making of not lying. James Denny said of this phrase, in Christ, means that he speaks in fellowship with Christ, so that falsehood is impossible. If Christ was standing by your side, and I understand Christ is with us all, but if he was standing by your side and you were aware of it, could you lie? And that's the point Paul is making here. Paul is saying it's impossible for me to lie because I'm speaking in fellowship with Christ. He continues, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, which is the second point to further strengthen his first assertion. His conscience bears witness with him. It concurs with what he is declaring. Paul calls the witness of an essentially clear conscience in conjunction with the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in him. Paul wants to assure the reader of his sincerity and the weight of the following declaration. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Great sorrow here may be best defined as an intense grief. And it's interesting to note that grief is defined as a deep sorrow, especially that caused by someone's death which was the apostles' concern for the Israelites, their spiritual death of unbelief. And continual grief may be best defined as unceasing distress. Distress is often associated with physical pain. This unceasing distress in his heart was the result of the intense grief Paul felt for his brethren. He had a great burden in his heart for his kinsmen, who by and large, had rejected the Messiah. And as is the case with this type of grief and this type of distress, you're willing to do the unthinkable, to go to great lengths to save the ones you love, which leads us to this radical statement. Verse three, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And honestly, that verse doesn't sit well with me. This statement is the cause of the Spurgeon quote we began with this morning. This gift that I've been given is not one I would part with. Paul begins with, I could wish. The Greek word for this phrase is in the imperfect tense, okay? 
That means it's an action which had begun, but was stopped, making it impossible. So A.T. Robertson said it this way, I was on the point of wishing that I myself were accursed from Christ. And accursed means to be doomed and separated from Christ and his salvation for all eternity. For my brethren, Paul says, my countrymen according to the flesh. He's essentially saying I was to the point of wishing that I, Paul, would be doomed to hell for my brethren. Let's address a few things before moving on, though. Of course, this isn't possible. And Paul knows that also. Paul just finished writing that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that fact emphasizes the weight of this burden he has so much more. Second thing is it's also not necessary. And we all know that because one already came and was accursed for the sins of Israel as well as all mankind. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians 3. Paul is expressing this unceasing burden he has for his people who are lost. This might be the response you would expect someone to make for a family member, a dear friend, not this group. Paul is truly expressing the same sacrificial love that Jesus displayed on the cross. From our scripture reading, as Jesus said, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The Jews were terrible to Paul. One such story is in Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas arrive in the area of Lystra. And they heal a man. And the Greeks in the town go, the gods are among us. It's Zeus and Hermes. And they're like, no, we're not great gods. Stop it. You know, don't worship us. And about the time they get them calmed down, the religious leaders come in and they incite a riot and they stone Paul nearly to death and drag him out of the town. Now we know the end of that story as well. Paul gets up and he walks back into that town. What he says we don't know and that's a great question for heaven. But these are the people he is willing to, willing to be doomed and separated from Christ for. A heart for the lost is burdened to save the lost from hell. Jude, verses 22 and 23, he writes, And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. There's a time for both of those responses. And as you consider the correct response for the next situation you find yourself in, be sure that you let all you do be done in love. And weigh your motives. Weigh your purposes for what you are speaking or writing. As David wrote, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. And Paul to the Colossians, walk in wisdom to those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Now we have another story in the Bible where we can see a similar response as Paul's exhibiting this burden for the loss. So if you would, please turn with me to Exodus 32. This is a story I'm sure many of you are familiar with. In fact, all the stories we're going to talk about this morning, I'm sure you're familiar with. 
So Moses, in Exodus 32, he's up on the mountain with God. And in verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Well, what happened? Well, we see that the people got a little tired of waiting for Moses. He was just taking far too long up on that mountain. So they go to Aaron, his brother, I might add, and say, come make us gods that shall go before us for as for this Moses, you could take it as for as for this Moses, like they don't know who he is, this guy that led him out of Egypt. And they go, make us something we can worship. And so Aaron said to them, okay, break off all your gold, give it to me, and he casts it in the fire, melts it down, and then makes a calf out of it to worship. So the Lord is done with them, but the burden Moses has for his people has an impact on the Lord, and he relents. So Moses goes down, pulls his brother aside, he talks to him. He's like, what happened? First he blames it on the Jews, and then he's like, and then I threw all this gold in the fire, and this calf just popped out which thousands of years later tell us that we have the lamest excuses when we've done something we know we shouldn't have done. We haven't changed much. So Moses deals with all of them, and then picking up in verse 30, here's our focus. So chapter 32, verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Again, another statement that's hard to comprehend but shows the heart for the loss that Moses had, his burden for his people. And listen, just like with Paul, these people weren't the easiest folks to be leading through the desert. They complained while he was talking to the Pharaoh. They complained when he took him out of Egypt. They complained about bitter water. They complained about being hungry. They complained about being thirsty. They relived their glory days of Egypt when they were in slavery, about all the great food they had. They complained about the manna that they got because they complained they were hungry. Aaron and Miriam specifically complain about Moses' leadership. They refuse to go into the promised land. They don't always follow instructions. They try to kill Moses. They blame Moses for their deaths. There's rebellion. You get the point. These people are impossible. Moses was willing to be blotted out of God's book if it could somehow rescue them. He is willing to be a sacrificial replacement for them. Of course, this sacrificial heart is a precursor to that of Jesus who did die for our sins. You know, a heart for the lost doesn't consider how difficult or complicated the person is. And even if they've plotted to kill you. Side note, not now, but do yourself a favor and look up Gracia and Martin Burnham's story. In particular, Gracia's commitment to those who captured her and caused the death of her husband and how she has led some of them to the Lord. Of course, we can't look at a heart for the lost without looking at Jesus. His ministry and compassion for the lost is the ultimate example of what the condition of our heart needs to be to save the lost. 
Unfortunately, we don't have the time to read all the Gospels or all the scriptures that tell us to be like Jesus and to do what he does. So we will settle by looking at just a few short examples. And we'll begin with Jesus' words in Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew 22. As I said earlier, this is a passage you all know. Beginning in verse 37 of Matthew 22, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Self-explanatory. Verse 39. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We should be concerned with others' well-being and interests. In the same capacity, we are concerned about our own well-being and interests. The loving relationship we enjoy with God that we saw in verse 37 should translate into our relationship with others. Verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If the life of God is real in our lives, it will show in the presence of our love for God and others. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, he writes, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he, Jesus, walked. This idea is reiterated and repeated all throughout Scripture, that we are to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. But to ensure that there is no confusion, neighbor is defined as any other person, irrespective of race or religion, with whom we live or whom we chance to meet. So not just your neighbor, Eddie, though Eddie may be a good place to start. Turn with me to Matthew 9. In Matthew 9, in verse 35, it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So Jesus is traveling through the region. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's, he's healing folks. He's certainly transforming lives. But he, just like the last two examples we went through, is not without critics. Just in the previous verses alone of this chapter, he's asked to leave the area after casting out a demon and healing a man. That's verse 1. Verses 2 through 4, speaking to the paralytic, he addresses the thoughts that he blasphemes. In verse 11, he's questioned why he eats with sinners. In verse 24, he's coming in to heal the ruler's daughter and he's ridiculed. In verse 34, he casts out demons by the rulers of demons. That's what they say about him. And that brings us to verse 35. And verse 35 begins with the word, then. Then Jesus went. None of this stopped Jesus from ministering and doing what needed to be done in doing the will of the Father. Yes, I know, but he's Jesus. The scripture also tells us, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in 
all points, not some points, all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the example we should follow and we have been told to follow. Paul says, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. But he also says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. In 1 John, we just read, we are to walk just as Jesus walked. So Jesus is certainly collecting followers, those that choose to believe him. But there's a great number of those that want nothing to do with him or what he's doing, even after witnessing miracles. But I'll say again, it doesn't stop him from his mission. Whether or not someone chooses God is between the hearer and God himself, not us. That's not our burden to bear. We have a mission, and when we are successfully performing our mission, perhaps it will include ridicule and criticism from the naysayers. Jesus says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. And similarly, Paul encourages the Philippians. Leave your finger here in Matthew 9 and turn with me to Philippians. So in a similar encouragement, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word conduct here speaks to our citizenship and our citizenship in the kingdom specifically. So what he's saying is, as you go about this world, act as a citizen of the kingdom. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. He wants a good report that they stand fast in one spirit with one mind, the mind of Jesus, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, and not any way terrified by your adversaries. Now this is an interesting phrase. Many commentators say that this terrified by your adversaries speaks to standing in the face of a horse stampede. It literally means you're standing there and you won't budge an inch as a stampede is coming your way. And what's Paul say? He says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. When we don't budge in the face of that, they know their time is coming. But to you who stand in the face of that, of salvation and that from God. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted a gift on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, gift one, but also to suffer for his sake, gift two. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. A heart for the lost will continue to walk as Jesus walked in the face of ridicule and persecution. Now back in Matthew 9, he goes on to say in verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. This moved with compassion, the Greek word used describes compassion which moves a man to the deepest depths of his being. Spurgeon said this word was coined by the evangelists themselves. They did not find one word in the whole Greek language that suited their purpose and therefore they had to make one up. Jesus' instant reaction was to be gripped with compassion at the sight of suffering and human need. 
You see, when we're gripped by anything else, whether it's anger, fear, or annoyance, it becomes increasingly more difficult to get a grip and respond appropriately. A heart for the lost is gripped with compassion. And why was Jesus gripped with compassion? Well, it tells us, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Weary and scattered, this could be translated as distressed and downcast or harassed and helpless, like sheep having no shepherd. And this is a perfect description of a life apart from God. As he continues, verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus sees the multitude, the lost, as a harvest. But a good harvest can go to waste without laborers to collect it. We need many diligent laborers. This multitude is also a diverse bunch of people. When we looked at the criticism and ridicule Jesus faced in this chapter, there were other elements we should consider as well. Firstly, Jesus responded differently to each one of the situations he encountered. Because each situation, need, and person were different. To the paralytic, he says, you're healed, and the woman is made well by her faith. In contrast, the little girl couldn't hear Jesus nor have faith in that moment because she was dead. She was healed when Jesus took her hand. He touches the blind man's eyes, and they're healed. So he treats each situation uniquely. Secondly, while we focused on the criticism and ridicule coming from the other groups, don't forget they are in the same category of lost people. They too are a part of the multitude of lost, the plentiful harvest. Jesus seeks to reach them in unique and personal ways as well. And thirdly, these folks are distressed and downcast partly because of the religious leaders. Listen, that's a risk for all of us, that we would become those religious people that drive someone further from the Lord than they already are. Our conduct matters. As Paul says to the Corinthians, give no offense, either to the Jews or to the Greek or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be. A heart for the lost abides in Jesus, and a heart for the lost approaches each individual uniquely, just as Jesus did. We sing the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. Consider those words for a moment and think about your lost condition when Jesus found you. My lost condition, I was raised in a home by a single mother who worked her tail off for my brother and I. Wonderful woman, my best friend, loved my mother. I did not grow up in a church, and I didn't grow up with a Bible, and that's okay. When I was 17 years old, I was working in a restaurant called JB's. Anybody know JB's? I got one in the first service, too. Was there another one? Anyway, one person, two people, no JB's. So I was working at JB's, and there was this church group that would come in every Sunday night, 
And they were patient with me, they would talk to me, they would love me, and they would deal with the fact that I didn't need them because I had my own relationship with God because I had read mere Christianity. I was good, okay? (laughs) So they were persistent for a year. And finally, I said to them what anybody would say in that situation. If I come to church, will you shut up? (laughs) But see, they knew what we all know in this room right now. They said, yeah. Yeah, we will. And so I went, and I was saved. But for 10 years, I was a wretch. I was a heathen. I believed that I was doing the right thing. I believed I was a good man. I was a drunk. I played on a stage, and I loved pride. I was a prideful, arrogant man. And when I think about where the Lord took that lost person in the condition I was in to where he has me now, I can understand the lost person that I'm speaking to better. Because I was a wretch. I was blind. I was lost. Now that's my story. Maybe your story was you were running to Jesus. Maybe you were ridiculing and criticizing. Maybe you hated God. If it was recent, maybe you even posted about your conduct on social media. Maybe you grew up in church. It's easy to lose sight of the ugly and dirty condition of being lost, especially when it attacks us or it attacks our God. Reaching the lost is messy business. Most times it's not pretty, nor is it quick. The darkness has blinded their eyes and the Lord says there's no peace for them. Remembering our once lost nature helps us to respond to the spiritual problems others are facing and not just the visible symptoms. Now, we can't discuss the lost condition without addressing the place where most of us are inundated with it every day. And that's social media. Social media puts a lot of things on full display. It often displays the worst of the worst from all sides, and many times getting the best of people. Just a few minutes on Facebook or Instagram at the right time, maybe a time like now, will show you the darkest depths of the lost condition and the tragic responses of those that should be shining as lights in this world. One such post I read, and really fueled my heart in this direction of a burden for the lost. It read, Oh, so God can kill his own son, but I can't. There is so much wrong with this sign. For starters, God didn't kill his own son. And the writer is literally referring to abortion as killing their own son. We could continue to dissect the sign, But that is precisely what happens when things like that are posted. More times than not, the sign or post gets refuted and dissected and we forget the person. I get it. I really do. We want to set the record straight about our God, but it's the love that's lacking. Any of you hate noisy toys as much as I do in your house? Anyone? Paul says, without love, we are the clanging symbol. We're like a clanging symbol. And it always reminds me of that stupid little monkey that claps. You know what I mean? Without love, that's what we are in the ear of the lost. We're a clanging symbol. And that is precisely the response this person likely expects to get. 
Because let's face it, this person is far more complicated and unique than this post alludes to. They could have at one time served in the youth ministry, could have been abused. Maybe they don't even know who God is, and maybe they're just regurgitating something they heard. The point is, we can find ourselves attempting to set straight what's wrong with that sign or that post, all the while disregarding the unique and complicated problems of the person behind it. Our burden should be reaching them, so they too can see what the sign says through the lens of God. They need a real encounter with Jesus just as we did because the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We should be loving God, loving one another, our neighbor as ourselves, and making disciples. We come to the rescue as the hands and feet of Jesus, as our title implies, as a Christian, a little Christ. For that, we also need godly wisdom, which we know is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Each one of us in this room has our own sphere of influence, right? Calvary Chapel Orlando has its sphere of influence, and social media can be a tool to expand that. We can reach far beyond that sphere and have a positive impact on a larger population of people. But the danger is... As a result of our conduct on social media, we can also have a negative impact on that larger group as well as our actual geographic sphere of influence. Our words and conduct matter greatly. As James writes, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak or type, (laughs) slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. As Christians, we have to be the same in the world wide web as we are in the world. We are his human instruments, and by God using us, it should bring more glory to him. Paul writes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let's turn to the scriptures for our final example of this lost condition. And maybe not one you're expecting. Philippians 3. Philippians 3. So, Paul makes this powerful statement in response to these legalists who indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. That's how he describes them in Colossians. And then picking up in verse 4, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Paul's saying if these legalists think they have confidence in the flesh, listen to this. Paul is not saying that he relies on it, but his accolades, his heritage, his credentials would support the confidence far more than these opponents. Verse 5, he says, circumcised the eighth day. Paul is a Jew by birth, circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. Of the stock of Israel, he is a Hebrew, an Israelite, and of the seed of Abraham. The tribe of Benjamin. Now this tribe had a special distinction. This is the tribe that King Saul came from. They stood by Judah and didn't revolt. He says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Both his parents were Israelites. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. These guys follow the law. 
I was a Pharisee. Verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. According to zeal from his own words, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This is the moral result of Paul's conduct. No one could ever accuse him of any misconduct of any kind as it pertained to the outward observance of the law. If anyone was capable of pleasing God by following the law, it was this guy. Now, Paul is using his before Christ credentials. This old man, Saul, had it all figured out, didn't he? He knew all he needed to know. He was untouchable and at the top of his game in this world. This list of credentials describes the man that was present at the stoning death of Stephen. If you would, turn with me to Acts 7. Leave your finger in Philippians. We're going back. So in Acts 6, Stephen is basically set up, and he's brought before this council. And in Acts 7, he breaks into this absolutely magnificent response to the council. And when we come toward the end of this chapter, we're going to meet this guy, Saul. So picking up in verse 54 of Acts 7 for context, we read, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at Stephen with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now Saul isn't done wreaking havoc on the church. We turn to chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This man, Saul, in act, embodied and believed those credentials and accolades we just read in Philippians. This was his present lost condition. Saul was wicked, yet in all he believed he was doing the right thing. So what changed? One thing we know for sure. Verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting it is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So what changed? One thing for sure, an encounter with Jesus. 
I also believe Stephen's speech and his death shook him to the core. I also believe Stephen's prayer to the Lord had an impact as well. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Prayer is the most powerful tool we possess, second only to the word of God. So turn back to Philippians 3. So an encounter with Jesus transformed Saul into Paul, and he was never the same again. This encounter led to his ability to say these words in response to those credentials we previously went through. Verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All of the above were gain, but now I count them as rubbish, literally dung or animal excrement. That's a stark contrast to Saul in Acts. Verse 9, and be found in him, in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What kind of sufferings did Paul know? Well, in 2 Corinthians 11, he gives a different list of credentials or accolades. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides these other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So what's the point of bringing you back and forth through these scriptures? Well, Saul once believed with every fiber of his being that which he would later count as rubbish. That was his truth. An encounter with Jesus transformed him forever, along with, I believe, prayer, and Christians being obedient to the Lord. Nobody is beyond the reach of God. As Paul tells Timothy, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul is saying if God can reach him, he can reach anyone. Jesus showed how long-suffering he can be with Paul. And that's an encouragement to all of us because nobody will get the title chief of all sinners. So there is plenty of God's mercy for all of us. And that is good news. Also, the transformed life of a sinner becomes a pattern for other sinners. God wants others to see what he can do by working in us. Paul is a picture of the lost. 
The person holding the God killed his son sign. The person who thinks God is cruel. The person that doesn't need God. The difficult person at work. Sincerely believes whatever their truth is today. But prayer and encounter with Jesus and obedient loving Christians will redirect their course forever. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we prepare to close. As Eric taught last week, we are living in a divine delay as we wait for the day we get to meet Jesus. Jesus wants to use us to reach the lost and bring as many people as we can with us. And I pray that we have a heart that is burdened for the lost. And I get it. I really do. I get it. I'm right there with you all. It's no easy task. Because as we were hopefully reminded this morning, it's messy business. People are difficult. And it's easy to respond incorrectly and to lack compassion. But the rewards of reaching them are far beyond what we could ever fully comprehend. To be victorious, we must be operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must be praying and abiding in Jesus, spending time with him every day. And as the church body, collectively, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not petty disputes and matters of little concern. Let's be encouraging one another, not bringing each other down into the depths of darkness. And as necessary, admonish one another in love. Let's commit to this area in our life to pray for and show the love of Jesus to the broken and lost. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need your strength for that commitment. Lord, this world is getting darker before our eyes, but we also know that in that darkness we can shine brighter than ever. So Lord, fill us all fresh with your spirit that we would go from here and be bright lights in this world for you. Lord, that we would have compassion, that we would be gripped by compassion for the lost, that we would see the individual and not the label we've applied to them. And Lord, that we would bring as many people as we possibly can into the kingdom with us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy that's new every day. We pray that you would bless us as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.